primary care knowledge boost, frailty. Welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. We hope you're all keeping okay. Today we've got a really lovely episode with Dr. Sadat Ahmed, who is a trainee geriatrician and he works in Greater Manchester and the episode's all about frailty. So yeah, he um, he talks to us about what frailty is, um, gives us tips about how to be able to recognise um, frailty, um, talks about what frailty syndromes are and what frailty scores are. And then we use an anonymised case that um, is kind of to help us talk through the, the complexity of frailty and um, multimorbidity and to try and tease out what his approach is and um, how to address such a big subject um, and really what a positive approach um can look like in general practice and generally for tackling frailty we'll be back at the end to share our learning points until then enjoy my name's Sadat um, some people know me as Sid I'm currently a geriatric trainee in the northwest uh, I'm an ST5 doctor at the moment and I've just finished a, an ST4 year where I was a chief registrar at Blackburn uh, which I highly recommend it's an RCP approved program as part of that I did some service development uh, with a hospital at home team and uh, I graduated from medical school in 2016. I went straight into an academic foundation program uh, which was essentially leadership and management. As part of that I worked under a chief exec who was also a geriatrician and she was very much an inspiration and a strong reason why I went into what I'm doing at the moment. Yeah, that's amazing. So well prepared and backgrounded for uh, this topic today, which is all about um, frailty, which we're quite excited to talk about because it's um, it's very, really, really important, um, obviously, out in, in primary care. Um, and I don't think that there's a m- enough discussion about it, really. Um, so do you mind off the kind of top telling us what we mean by frailty and, and why it matters as a diagnosis or a concept um, when it comes to patients? Uh, sure. Um, so I think frailty, uh, as a definition, it's a deterioration in multiple physiological systems and uh, as a result of that you have an increased susceptibility to uh, sudden functional deterioration just as a result of minor stresses so you know to put that into some context or to provide an example a young 23 year old with an uncomplicated UTI will bounce back quite quickly after a short course of antibiotics However, an 87-year-old with a clinical frailty scale of 7 and some mild cognitive impairment, she might encounter some delirium as a result of that and it might take her a bit longer to recover and she might not get back to where she was before she was treated. And we see that quite regularly in practice, but sometimes it's quite hard for us to relay that to the patient and their families. It's, it's a definition that's useful because it allows us to preempt, it allows us to prepare and Worldwide, 1.1 billion people are aged over 60. That's projected to rise to 2.1 billion by 2050. And in the UK, the fastest growing age group are the over 80s. So we're going to be encountering more and more of it. Um, That's not to say age is frailty, but frailty is an age-related condition. Yeah, It is going to be extremely important at the moment because it's a huge bulk of what we do right now. And that's only going to get uh, more and more prevalent as time goes on. Yeah, completely fair. That's really great scene setting. Thank you, Sid. Yeah. 
when we were preparing for the conversation with you, we were looking into frailty a little bit more and, and quite early on in some of the um, guidelines and things, they mentioned frailty syndromes, which I don't know, I have to admit, I don't know if I've ever come across properly before. Um, can you just talk us through a bit about what they are? Uh, so you might have come across the term geriatric giants in the past. Uh, so frailty syndromes are basically the new name for geriatric giants. So uh, one way of thinking about it is the the big eyes so a lot of them can be put into categories beginning with i that's that's why i call them the big eyes but you've got some um, immobility instability falls um you've got uh, impaired cognition um iatrogenesis so that's like polypharmacy and i think there's another one uh, incontinence that's the one <laughs> And there's a couple of others as well. So like impairments in vision and hearing and insomnia. There's various others that you can fit into various frailty-related syndromes and problems that patients encounter. Even isolation itself uh, can be a problem that we come across. And as a result of isolation, we see various other geriatric syndromes like you know geriatric depression. The reason why they're important or the reason why they're relevant is because people will present to you with elements of these syndromes or the syndrome itself and that can be a flag for you to think you know does this person need a little bit more of a workup do they need a bit more of a holistic approach do we need to start thinking about frailty i gave the example before of the uti and the young you know 23 year old which is fairly uncomplicated and you know resolves quite quickly but then you know, when you come across the same urinary symptoms in someone who's older, then often there's a lot more to think about. Yeah. Yeah. So it's having that at the back of your mind, sort of having that question and, and thinking about flagging it up. Thinking about referring patients into geriatric clinics, um, who do you think any any advice for GPs or primary care clinicians about the types of people that you that you think should be referred into clinics? So that's a tricky question. Um, it's mainly because um, I think there was some fit for frailty guidance that was published in 2014, uh, and it's on the BGS or British Geriatric Society website. So people who are frail, who have complex medical issues with an element of diagnostic uncertainty, and I think a lot of this is left up to uh, the discretion of the initial provider. Often it's when you're struggling to deal with multiple problems at once within the time space that you have. Because mm. as a geriatrician, my advantages are I have a bit more time during my clinic slots. Um, I have some training and I have um, access to secondary care resources as well uh, and investigations and pathways. So I can tell you about the res referrals that are not so useful, for example. Yeah. So this was going way back. Um, so when the electronic frailty index was being introduced into a certain practice and people did not know what to do with it. So we'll come on to what that is in a bit, but essentially someone scored a particular number on this frailty index. And so they were referred as a result of this number right. to myself asking for a comprehensive geriatric assessment. So unfortunately I didn't speak to the patient themselves because they were extremely deaf and it was a telephone conversation during the pandemic. So I spoke to the patient's son they had no idea why they were referred. And the only concern that they had was her hearing, which <laughs> I had very little control over apart from signposting to the audiology services to which they had already been referred. But that was probably a clinic slot that could have been better utilised in my eyes. Then again, I 
don't know the ins and outs of it, but I could say that the types of referrals that I get, most of them, um, more than happy to see anyone who's frail and complex uh, from my end. I, don't, I can't speak for every geriatrician out there. I think it's also worthwhile uh, bearing in mind that geriatricians are now sub-specialising as well. So we've got movement disorders, Parkinson specialists, we've got people specialising in stroke, uh, we've got people specialising in continence, and then we've got people who are also specialising in community geriatrics as well. So it's worthwhile getting to know your services. For example, where I work, they have an award-winning continent service, but they're run by urogynecologists. We do work in the NHS and we are working with limited resources. So it's worthwhile getting to know your you know, waiting lists and what can be done in the meantime whilst they're waiting. Because I'll often see patients who are referred you know, with a fall, for example. I'll see them several months later and actually they've compensated quite well after having that fall. A lot of the advice I'd normally give, they've already been given this advice and they've managed quite well, but then they present with a different problem altogether. If there's someone who's complex and you're struggling to meet all of their needs within your limited time slots and and you think that there might be a role for a geriatrician, feel free to refer, bearing in mind that there are waiting lists and there aren't that many geriatricians to serve the, the public demand. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's really useful. So not treating people by numbers, you know, if there are particular issues or the level of complexity such that you think a sort of more thorough assessment might be useful. And sometimes there are warning signs as well. You know, when someone's having repeated contact with a healthcare provider or recurrent admissions to A&E, and that's sometimes another sign that, you know, maybe they need a little bit of extra help. But then that's where a problems list is really useful as well. Because if they have one overarching problem, then sometimes I do wonder, you know, are they better off being managed under another specialty? For example, if it's just uncontrolled diabetes, which is contributing to everything else, then I'm not very good at starting insulin, for example. Because you've got to remember that some people, they find it difficult to attend appointments. Yes. That's not to say that that's everyone. You've got to individualise your approach. Fantastic. Well, we thought we'd take a case uh, to guide us through um, talking to you about your approach to frailty. So the case is anonymised um, with some bits changed, but it is based um, on some um, real information that we have. So we've got 87-year-old Valerie. Um, she's a retired secretary who lives independently and she used to be a really avid walker. Her past medical history includes type 2 diabetes, um, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, iron deficiency anemia, urinary incontinence, and then most recently she's been having falls. In her medication list, um, she has atorvastatin, metformin, dapagliflozin, citagliptin, amylodipine, ramipril, furosemide, and oxybutynin. And this time she's come into primary care to see us because she's quite upset. Um, she's been getting dizzy spells um, and her confidence has been really knocked since she had a recent fall. And now she's rarely leaving the house. Um, so with that kind of starting point and that information that you've gathered um, off the outset, where where would you want to take this, Sid? Um I'm guessing I'm seeing this patient in a geriatric clinic setting. So I start information gathering before the patient enters my room. So I'll have a look at her referral letters and her uh, results and investigations so far. It looks like the reason for her referral is her fall and her loss of confidence. Uh, so I'm guessing that she's going to be experiencing an element of fear of falling. So I'll be approaching this from a false clinic perspective, I think. And then as soon as the patient enters. Um, so my general approach to all of these cases and all of these frailty syndromes is to 
implement a comprehensive geriatric assessment. So that's the CGA. To be honest with you, it's uh, it's not easy. There's a really good guidance on the again the BGS website. So there's a primary care toolkit, but it does advise that a full CGA does take two to three hours to perform. I do not have two to three hours in clinic no. to be able to do this, but there are a few other um, key aspects to the definition. So one is it's interdisciplinary. It's not just me doing this on my own. Even that first contact with a primary care c- provider is part of the CGA. I'll be part of the CGA and then other uh, healthcare professionals who will be involved in Va- Valerie's care will also be part of that CGA and they may be therapists. Uh, we're all working together uh, for the same goal, which is essentially to improve Valerie's quality of life and maybe even to you know reverse some of her frailty syndromes. Um, so when she enters the door, the first thing I'll do with Valerie is create a problems list with full awareness that you know I might not be able to address every single problem there and then. We might not be able to address all of them ever, depending on where she is in her frailty journey. I think we'll cover the frailty scores or the way of ways of screening for frailty soon. But what I'd say is if we just broadly categorize them into mild, moderate, severe, once you reach moderate frailty, it's very hard to get back to mild frailty or even to no frailty. And so a lot of what we do is try and deal with expectations as well. It depends on how acute the presentation is, because you often have heard the word gradual decline. If there's something that's happened very quickly, often the clinical frailty scale, which we'll come on to, is uh, in the acute setting relates to how someone was two weeks prior to their presentation. Um, but if if it's something's happened very quickly, then the chances of recovery are much greater. But in a clinic setting, I've often I often see patients months down the line. So that's where. You know, we just try and make life a little bit better. And often, you know, small changes can make a huge world of difference. But yeah, that's my initial approach will be to create a problems list and to work out what's important to Valerie, what her priorities are, and then move on from there. Fantastic. Um, And you mentioned frailty scores there, so it might be worth um, talking about them now. Um, If you Mm -hmm. can kind of give us a bit of an overview um, of them and how they're used. Yeah. So frailty screening is uh, something that's gained a lot of traction in recent years. But unfortunately, what to do with your results is still a bit subject to review. So the ones that we most commonly come across, we've got the frailty index, and then we've got the clinical frailty scale. So just out of curiosity, which ones are you more familiar with in primary care? Because I think it depends on where you work. Um, I, I'm sure at some points I've read about them, but nothing that I knew particularly. I, talking to other GPs, I think the electronic frailty index was one that was mentioned. Lisa, did you? I was going to say, yeah, but um, it would have been the EFI that I was more familiar with just as a concept than the than the scale. But yes, yeah, similar. I'm not fully versed in them, um, said, so it would be great to get your thoughts. That's all right. So the frailty index was uh, initially looked at by Professor Kenneth Rockwood, who also developed the clinical frailty scale. So the frailty index is uh, related to cumulative deficits, so those that build up over time. The electronic frailty index is very much reliant on the GP coding that we're familiar with. So they they look at different domains. You've got diseases, disease states. So they're like your osteoarthritis, your chronic kidney disease, your type 2 diabetes. 
then you've got um, coding related sy- symptoms and signs. So they might be, you know, breathlessness, exhaustion. Uh, then you've got the function. So you have you have people coded as being housebound, needing assistance, you know, with personal care, with bathing. And then finally, you've got some lab values. So, um, so that mainly relates to things like anemia. Uh, so it's not complete, it's not exhaustive, but it's quite evidence-based. So they found that with these cumulative deficits, um, they give them scores. And I think their maximum score is 0.61 or 0.63, something like that. And they co- tend to correlate quite well with different grades of frailty, um, according to the clinical frailty scale, which more assesses you according to function. So they tend to correlate well well with like your clinical frailty score. So if you've got scores of so the severe end will be seven to nine. Uh, so those are people who might be approaching the end stages of life. That tends to correlate well with scores of over 0.36. So if you tend to be more dichotomous about it, whether they're frail or not frail, then the problem is it can overestimate frailty. So uh, I'm going to use my mum as an example, which is why I'm not a big fan of the EFI, because my mum's technically coded as moderate frailty, which definitely does not correlate with the score. But that's just because she has had a lot of engagement with her healthcare providers. And, you know, she keeps up to date with her appointments when it comes to her thyroid issues, her diabetes, all of which are well controlled. But as a result of all of these cumulative deficits, now she's got this um, coding on her system which people who are more aware of the frailty index and how they work, they can take it with a pinch of salt, but people who aren't might put too much onus on that code. The reason it's a bit personal to me is just because of what I experienced during the pandemic. So working during the peak waves of the pandemic in ICU and in the acute medical setting, especially the first few waves, there was a lot of discussions around ceiling of treatment. Yeah, I think ceiling of care was one of my least favorite phrases because we shouldn't have a ceiling of care you can still care for people who might not be you know suitable for intensive interventions but you're still caring for them Mm -hmm. and you're providing different treatment options but um i think that's that's a frailty index so you've got these codes and then they all tally up and i think the other problem is they don't put more weighting into one code than the other for example you can have diabetes that's well controlled and then you can be you can be housebound which is quite a significant deterioration in your function yeah. but the amount of weighting that goes through each, each of those categories is all a number that's just you know all tallied up so it has positives because it's evidence-based and it does tend to correlate well with the frailty scale and also with outcomes the reason we tend to use the clinical frailty scale in the hospital setting more is because one is very quick and easy to use it tends to be quite reproducible uh, the other good thing about it is it's um, it correlates well with function. In terms of its evidence base in the acute medical department and in the emergency setting, it's a very good predictor of, for example, one month mortality once they're admitted and in-hospital mortality as well. So that's why it was used a lot during the COVID pandemic. And again, there are downsides to it as well because it's a very subjective score. So your clinical failure to scale, uh, if you're scoring a one, you're very fit and you exercise regularly. If you're scoring a nine, then you're terminally ill and approaching the last six months of your life. So you have to be careful with it. One, it's only validated in people age 65 and over. It doesn't apply to people with learning disabilities. So you have to be careful about who it's applied to and why it's applied. It's useful for telling us how we should tailor our approach and our interventions. Um, It's really useful, for example, in the 
if you're approaching the clinical frailty scale of seven to nine, so these are the severely frail patients who are dependent on all aspects of their personal care, then you can have a think about whether it's actually worthwhile, you know, introducing a statin, whether it's worthwhile investigating iron deficient anemia with, um, you know, invasive measures, or whether we should be thinking about what we can do to improve quality of life and improve symptoms. Then it's also useful in the milder categories if you're thinking about the clinical frailty scale of four to five so that's where they become a bit more slowed up you know household chores and activities are becoming more of an effort and they might need a little bit of extra help with the instrumental activities of daily living so these are things like their finances their transport um, shopping uh, meal prep medications the reason these frailty scales are useful is because we start asking these questions more so if you do a little bit of digging and diving, then you can you can realise where someone who initially comes across as being quite independent and functioning quite well, if you ask further questions, you might realise actually they're not doing as well as they initially come across on the surface. And the reason they're managing well is because they've got some support networks and they've got some help for them to continue to function the way they do. And the reason these questions are useful is sometimes you come across with bereavement and the you know the networks that they had are suddenly gone especially in old age especially when it comes to spouses loved ones um when you know when you have a sudden loss then you're much less resilient than you were so that's that's where i find the clinical frailty scale is useful is because you start asking these questions you can't just use it as a single tool on its own you have to use it along with the rest of your clinical assessment and your overall holistic approach because one thing I found that was quite disturbing, but also disturbing but necessary at the time was there was a lot of weight put into the clinical frailty scale during the first waves of the pandemic when we were seeing our COVID pneumonitis patients. So there it was used in quite a dichotomous fashion when you had higher frailty scales, which essentially determined whether you would be a candidate for intensive care, for CPAP or intubation and ventilation. And that's not to say that that was a wrong approach. It's just that was where we became more familiar with the frailty scale. Obviously, every scale and every guideline and every assessment tool are always going to have their pros and cons. But wow, what a way to bring that into the light in terms of teasing out some of the really important bits becomes a matter of life and death in a way that a lot of scales would, wouldn't necessarily. So yeah, they're really, really important. Yeah. I think it's important like not to just focus on the things that we can't do but also the things that we can do as well and that's sometimes what's um underestimated in frailty um i'm hoping to try and guide us toward getting us away from that approach of best supportive care there's nothing else we can do just keep comfortable and then actually there's plenty that we have available within our abilities and repertoire to make life better more manageable and you can also focus on both quantity and quality it doesn't have to be one or the other the reason the frailty scale is useful is because, you know, one to nine means that you can intervene at various points in the scale. So if you can if you can see someone who's at risk of frailty, then maybe you can do more to either slow the progression or even to re- reverse it to some extent if you do enough digging and investigating. Yeah. But then again, at the same time, there's that difficult balance between taking care not to over-investigate where that might not be in the patient's best interests or it might just not be in their wishes either. It might just be personal preference. Yeah. 
So, I mean, yeah, to illustrate the um, what you're talking about being proactive and sort of goal orientated, if we go back to get to Valerie, mm-hmm. I think, um, when you've seen her in clinic and you've done the problems list and worked out what her priorities are, mm-hmm. um, can you talk us through a little bit more about what kind of investigations you might do for her? So just as a reminder, she's she's coming in with her main priorities being that she wants to get her confidence back um, would love to get back to even doing a little bit of walking and um, is feeling dizzy and had those falls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I've worked in various falls clinics in various departments in some places they'll automatically do an ECG and a lying standing blood pressure as soon as they arrive, which can tell you a lot of information. In this case, if she has a postural drop, then that gives me a bit of guidance where to go next. Um, Bear in mind, dizziness isn't always postural hypertension in the elderly. It could be orthostatic in nature, it could be cardiac, it could be neurogenic, it could be vestibular. So a falls assessment is very very much, as well as your investigations, a lot of it comes from the history as well. And so, you know, if we dive a little bit deeper into Valerie, and I know she's got a few other issues as well, which may or may not be related. Uh, I can see that she's on various medications. Um, Being on four or more medications automatically counts as polypharmacy. So we can see how much of that is contributing. Looking at that piece of paper, I can see she's already on amlodipine, ramipril, and bruzamide as well, yeah. And uh, she's suffering from problems with incontinence. So I probably want to explore her urinary problems as well, because that furizamide is already ringing alarm bells, seeing as she doesn't have heart failure. I guess my initial investigations will be tailored to what I get from her history. They'll have often had things done already in clinic. So I can see she's got a code of iron deficiency anemia. So I can look at what her previous haemoglobin was, how long ago that was done. She's not on iron tablets, so I can try and work out why that is as well. Yeah. Um, so when you've seen her and you're in a lovely clinic and they've done her lying and standing blood pressure for you, um, her lying blood pressure was 135 over 90. Uh, and then standing after one minute, it was 112 over 85. But when they did do it, the nurse reported that she was feeling dizzy. Then when you've asked her about the urinary incontinence um, and delved a bit deeper into her fluid intake you've you've uh, found out that actually she's not drinking very much because she's so worried about losing continence and then she's also reported that she's got an irritated feeling around the vulva where would you go from there so it looks like her problems list when i ask valerie about her priorities it may be that yes she's had a fall before and yes she's scared of falling but her main issue might be her urinary problems. So in that case, I'll look into her continence issues. So urinary incontinence is uh, an often neglected part of the comprehensive geriatric assessment. Not on purpose, it's mainly due to, if, if you don't ask, they often won't tell. People will often describe problems with their waterworks, not going into much detail. They might complain about urge frequency. So you have to delve a little bit deeper. So incontinence can be you know, categorised into urge incontinence, stress incontinence, is it mixed? Uh, is there an overactive bladder element to it? Are there features of bladder outlet obstruction, which is more common in uh, elderly men with uh, prostate issues? But depending on this, then you can go into further investigations and management strategies. Um, so, you know, in Valerie's case, for example, she if she's um, experiencing features of urge incontinence, 
I mean, this could be multifactorial. And in terms of an examination, it's always important to remember the intimate examinations because that will guide what you do next. So depending on what you see, depending on what you feel on examination, very much changes, can change your trajectory. Even simple things like atrophic vaginitis, which is extremely common in postmenopausal women. Uh, so it's just the dryness um, as a result of losing that uh, estrogen. That's where you've got topical estrogen creams that are available. Uh, urinalysis is useful as well. And sending off uh, cultures if needed. Um, if they've got white discharge consistent with thrush, then that can be a quick, easy fix. And you know they all contribute to urinary frequency. It's important to like look at what's been done before and what hasn't been done before. Uh, that I've often been known to bladder and bowel services or incontinent services in the past. Uh, so I've known people who have been given just pads, and the pads provided by the NHS can be very big, unsightly. So people will just buy their own. But then, as a result of that, the ones that you get over the counter that are smaller, you have to change more frequently. And you know, if you've got someone who is outgoing and social and you know likes going out to cafes with their friends but then they're having to go to the toilet all the time to change their pads they will limit their fluid intake because they find that that's that's what helps them manage but then it's not really good for their overall well-being their kidneys and in valerie's case her postural hypotension which is more and more common older age because um when it comes to your autonomic nervous system and your baroreceptor reflex, we know that as you grow older, you have some dysregulation. So you're a little bit more prone. If you or I, in our younger ages, when we don't drink enough, it takes a lot for us to suddenly drop our blood pressure and fall to the floor. Whereas in Valerie's case, it probably doesn't take much to tip her over the edge, which is where we talked about frailty and that increased susceptibility to functional decline. In her case, yes, she needs to drink more, but that's going to compromise her quality of life if we leave her urinary problems unchecked. So yeah, I think the starting point is definitely do an examination, work out what's going on, work out what we're treating. Just make sure we're ruling out other things like a prolapse, which might warrant a referral to specialist services. So you've got your flags for referral as well. So you know, if there's any pain, so pain in the abdomen, dysuria, if you've got blood in the urine, or if you've got a visible prolapse, then that warrants a referral to your, you know, urogynecologist. You know, even if you think that they might not be suitable for surgery, there are still non-surgical methods that are available through, often through urogyne services. And even things like pelvic floor exercises, the evidence is there for those exercises being done under supervision. And often those pelvic floor physiotherapists are available under your local continent services. And that's where I go back to what I said before, learn, learn about your local services what's available to your patients in your area because you know some services might work better than others and sometimes the waiting list might be so big maybe you just need to redirect them to uh, some patient leaflets uh, on your websites and on that note just be a little bit aware about potential digital ageism as well because um, you can signpost people to websites but in your elderly frail population a lot of them some of them might not be using the internet. So some of them are, and some of them are like, you know, well-versed with technology and constantly, you know, Skyping or FaceTiming their relatives on their iPads, but some of them are not. Um, we base this case around some of the examples from your uh, real clinic experiences. And when we were talking about it, you'd mentioned a similar case where 
sort of it started off with the falls assessment but actually um it, it did turn out that this was a, a really big feature of it was the dehydration and then her urinary symptoms that she was getting um so on examination uh with valerie um we find that she actually does have vulvovaginitis and a prolapse as well a vaginal prolapse um, and you mentioned already getting your a friendly urogynecology team involved as well do you think I can draw a line under the urogyne bit and then move on to ask her, ask you about the other bits? Can do. Um, the one thing I'd say about vulvovaginitis, so yeah, you've got to have your diagnostic thinking cap on. People will often throw everything in the kitchen sink and that's the wrong way to approach it. So you can throw estrogen creams and, you know, caniston or fluconazole and, you know, a bit of hydrocortisone cream to try and tackle multiple things at once, but then you don't know what's worked and you don't know what you're dealing with Um so in Valerie's case, for example, she's on an SGLT2 inhibitor, which does increase your risk of um, candidiasis. Uh, so it might be worth looking into whether she's had thrush before, whether she's been previously treated. And then another overlooked diagnosis is um, lichen sclerosis. So if you've got those uh, white plaques that thicken skin, then that responds really well to steroids. And you can you can use steroid creams on top of estrogen the topical estrogen creams or they come as creams and pessaries and tablets it's good to have a bit of awareness because some people will tolerate the treatments better than others it seems harmless and from a systemic point of view it's quite harmless that um topical estrogen therapy but it can increase discharge as well so it's important to warn your patients about that there's a few nuances to it um so i think um, if you're not sure, then sometimes it's best to start an intervention and then refer on to someone who might know. The important thing is just to make sure that you're addressing any flags and if there's anything that requires further management. For example, often if you try and do a biomanual exam or a vaginal examination, if they're extremely tight and dry as a result of atrophic vaginitis, you're just not going to be able to do a biomanual, you're not going to be able to do a speculum. In which case that's fine. You can start some treatment and you can start the referral process if needed to try and get them assessed. You know, if she's complaining about a dragging sensation down there, you could try and get them assessed further for a potential prolapse. You know, it'd be worthwhile making sure that you've got a diagnosis there so that you know how to manage it and what to do if it gets worse, for example. Yeah, you're not missing anything and that you're um, being proactive with things that could improve her quality of life. Yeah, exactly. Um, so moving on with Valerie, the other element that you spoke about before was about um, her fluid intake. How would you address that in clinic? Um, I tend to be less paternalistic. One thing I like is detail. So I'll go into a lot of detail about what they're taking in exactly, because a lot of the patients I encounter will be sustaining themselves on caffeinated drinks only. And so that's where, you know, simple lifestyle adjustments you know, if they really enjoy the taste and they get a lot of pleasure out of it, a lot of the decaffeinated products out there, the taste is very similar, if not the same. You know, have they thought about these simple adjustments? And the important thing is to be a little bit smart about the advice that you give. And by smart, a lot of us will be used to, you know, the, the QI acronym, you know, specific, measurable, achievable, results-based and uh, using timescales. But you can apply the same to patients as well. And it's something that's actually recommended in the CGA approach as well, is um, being smart with your goals and objectives. Because every bit of advice, every intervention, every tablet that we prescribe, there's no guarantees. They may work, they may not, 
a lot of everything we do is evidence-based but that's not to say that one approach will work for everyone and a lot of the tablets that we prescribe in the elderly and frail the trials in which you know they're validated often exclude the elderly and frail so uh, we have to be aware that um, our approach needs to be a little bit more tailored and it needs to be a bit more nuanced so in Valerie's case when it comes to you know increasing her fluid intake we can say let's take a multi-pronged approach to this let's see what we can do about your urinary symptoms so one is I'm going to stop your frusamide because if I do a little bit more digging it was prescribed shortly after the amlodipine was prescribed which caused her to have puffy ankles which are no longer a problem because she doesn't drink much anymore let's stop the frusamide see if that helps her urinary symptoms and see if that helps her drink more and that might one help with her postural symptoms and two it might help her increase her fluid intake but you know might not be the be all and end all because we know that we've got some positive findings in a vaginal examination which also needs seeing too so the key is you do an intervention and then you reassess and it might not be yourself it might be her next appointment with her primary care provider so i'm talking about valerie because she in this case because she lives alone but there are some people who live with their family have good support networks some people are quite scheduled methodical and they, they'll be able to self-manage they'll be able to arrange their own follow-up let's try this it may work i'll wait for my appointment and then if all is well i leave it alone and i don't need to you know we don't need to keep arranging appointments left right and center but for some people they you know especially those who wait until the very last second to present or wait until they're reaching crisis point then it might be worth just arranging that arranging that follow-up for them yeah and especially in the cases of like mild cognitive impairment yeah that's where some of the continuity and the community teams can be really helpful as well yeah exactly um the other things that you mentioned when we were talking about it were things around bone health and polypharmacy and, and medication mm-hmm. review um in your consultation I guess you don't have infinite time either. How do you manage that when you're, you say like you're just seeing her for the first time that there are um, things where you want to follow up with it, but you might not have time. How do you, how do you then deal with that? So often in our frailty clinics or frailty units, you'll have some CGA performers, uh, which are useful because they have prompts. So you'll have a polypharmacy prompt, which is uh, essentially using your stop start criteria so that's a really useful resource if you've not heard of it before. It's an evidence-based way of uh, stopping and starting medications that may or may not be indicated or may or may not be needed. And sometimes they require adjustments in their dosing as well. We used to see iron being prescribed quite regularly at uh, three times a day doses, for example, whereas um, often once a day doses or even once every other day will suffice. And that can negate the need for, you know, expensive iron infusions, which again, uh, have their own drawbacks, not just in terms of resources, but in terms of patient experience, having to go to an outpatient clinic setting to set up an infusion and then having to remember to, you know, go back in a week's time. Suboptimal entirely. Thank you, Dr. Gregory, years ago, teaching us that. <laughs> but um, yeah, Stop Start is really useful because when it comes to polypharmacy, there's a lot of focus on de-prescribing, but we've got to remember sometimes that polypharmacy is appropriate polypharmacy as well. And it might be that the medications that are being taken, especially, for example, after a recent MI, you'll get started on a whole waft of tablets and they all have like prognostic benefits. So in someone who's earlier on in their clinical frailty scale, 
a CFS of you know three to six, it's probably worthwhile considering continuation of a lot of these medications, but bearing in mind that they might have a worse side effect profile, so they might need tinkering, either lower doses or sometimes adjusting the timing of their dose. So, you know, they might be better off taking their antihypertensives at night if they're not up in the night that often. You know, persistent bacteria, for example, in the case of Valerie, that's something that you'd want to ask. So that's the polypharmacy side of things. Um, and there's often a little prompt for bone health as well. This That's a big part of what we do as geriatricians and a big part of our training as well is the the NOG guidelines, so National Osteoporosis Guidance Group. We all know the devastating impacts of fragility fractures in terms of the impact on patients. And when it comes to frailty syndromes, there aren't many things that cause such an a sudden immediate deterioration in your clinical frailty scale on a near permanent basis than, you know, a massive hip fracture. Yeah, a FRAC score and seeing whether either a DEXA scan is indicated. And sometimes you realise that actually immediate treatment is indicated because if you have a hip fracture, then you don't need to wait for a DEXA scan. That's where we have that prompt. Um, In Valerie's case, uh, we know that she is suffering from a degree of frailty we know that she's had a fall in the past and she's at risk of falls. So she definitely warrants an assessment. Uh, and so we've got a FRAC score. If you use a FRAC score properly, then it'll, the graph will basically tell you what to do, but in correlation with your own clinical judgment as well. Um, so where I'd be a little bit more, more wary or careful in starting bone protection straight away is people who are severely frail and where they're in bed a lot. Because obviously you've got the guidance where you you know, take the um, bisphosphonate while sat up 30 to 60 minutes, avoid lying down. For some people, that's impossible. For some people, it might be more appropriate for IV zolindronic acid. And that's where it's useful learning your own local policies and pathways. And sometimes it's not indicated at all. So if you're approaching the end stages of your life, then there's no point contributing to polypharmacy and unnecessary medications and an unnecessary tablet burden. But at the same time, if you've got someone who's quite frail, and they have worsening frailty as a result of progressive vertebral crush fractures, osteoporotic, you know, wedge fractures contributing to their chronic back pain, then in those types of cases, maybe they do warrant uh, bisphosphonate therapy. And we've got some other agents available as well. We've got fracture liaison service pathways, bone health pathways, and uh, often the rheumatologists will get involved in more complex cases. So I mentioned before, you know, don't just focus on the things that you can't do. There's plenty that we can do. We talked about the things that we have in our arsenal to be able to help. So we've got lots of options. It's just a case of diving a little bit deeper. And again, just taking that holistic approach and offering the options, including the pros and cons to the patient, but being aware that they've got their own priorities, their goals, their wishes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think Valerie's case does highlight quite a few learning points and shows about the complexity of approaching a patient with multimorbidity and a patient that has a significant problem list. But so do you have any other tips um, for general practice about managing patients with frailty? Um, well, I mentioned knowing the services that are available to you and your patients. It's important to be pragmatic. So it, it applies to both geriatricians and GPs and every other specialist. You can only do what you can do within the time constraints that you have and the pressures that you're under and the limited resources that we have. So focus on the things that you can do, but realise that you can't do everything and that's what teams are for. So the one thing the hospital at home service and the 
have different names in different areas. So you've got virtual wards in some places, urgent care response. So they do do a lot, but it's important to be aware of what they do do and what they don't do as well. Because I think they'll only follow people up for a certain period of time during the acute phase of their illness. And then they're they're not able to provide much in terms of continuity after that. But then they can get the ball rolling. Um, The other tip I'd give is um, don't think about doing a CGA on every patient but think about doing a mini CGA so addressing certain elements and the things that can help guide you are that problems list again being aware that you can't fix every problem but you can work on priorities according to what's causing the patient like Valerie what's causing them the most amount of distress at that point in time and what are the interventions that are likely to have the greatest impact you know, sometimes that can be something just as small as stopping her frusamide and you might find everything is much better and actually she's able to cope much more than she did before and she's able to leave the house a lot more. Focus on the small wins, I guess. Uh, that's another tip I can give. Yeah, I think off the top of my head, that's probably the immediate advice I can give because I'm well aware of how much you can achieve in a 10 to 20 minute consultation. I get thir- you know 30 to 40 minutes and even I struggle within that time frame at this point in time, bearing in mind I am quite early in my journey, but yeah, it's, it's not easy <laughs> and that's okay. I think the problem is our, the way our systems are designed is in, in the NHS in general and in most healthcare systems in the world is we're designed to be able to solve quick, easy problems, you know, single organ dysfunction. Our healthcare systems are ageist in their very nature because we're designed to be able to deal with like younger, less complex patients. We're not designed to be able to deal with more complex patients. So we're trying to adapt, but we're probably not adapting as quickly as we need to because it is one of the biggest public health challenges we face probably in our lifetime, uh, along with climate change. But, you know, the increasing like frailty endemic is something that we need to be a bit more wary of but yeah focus on your small wins (laughs) yeah so in terms of resources we've been making notes as we go along so that we can try and uh, catch some of the things that you've mentioned any other resources that you wanted to highlight for clinicians or for patients i guess for clinicians we mentioned the cga toolkit for primary care the bgs has um, a frailty e-learning hub uh, that's quite good. Um, it doesn't take very long. Um, so for those who are in the dark about frailty and uh, don't know too much about it or want, want to know, learn a little bit more, it um, goes into some of the things I talked about, like the frailty scales, and goes into you know the next steps and touches on the different management strategies, advanced care planning and things like that. For patients, um, I'd say it's very much depends on their problems list. So there's lots of resources available for, you know, postural hypotension, for example. Didn't really talk about other conservative measures because it's, there's a lot to fit in in this. There, there is guidance that's available from both geriatricians and uh, occupational physiotherapists um, for counter-pressure manoeuvres, you know, squatting, crossing your legs before you stand up, a bit of a fluid bolus or, you know, a glass of water before you intend to get up in the morning, having one by the bedside. There are simple measures that you can take to try and, you know, if you're suffering for suffering from chronic symptoms, because autonomic failure is extremely common in the elderly, especially if you're diabetic, and if you've got other conditions such as Parkinson's disease, um, there are ways of trying to make things more manageable without having to resort to tablets which have their own, you know, side effects and potential consequences. Which not to say that they're not always needed. I'll often prescribe medications for 
postural hypertension when you know there aren't any other tablets to stop and when conservative measures aren't working and when it's causing a significant deterioration in their quality of life then you know that's where those tablets are available and by that i mean like things like midodrine and flutricortisone but yeah there's there's lots of resources out there for patients so it's a case of you know signposting and sometimes in clinic it might just be useful thinking about what i mentioned earlier people having various ways of accessing the internet or no access or maybe struggling to use technology for various reasons then you can just print out the leaflets in clinic there and then and sometimes that's that's what I'll do I'll have like a list of leaflets and things that are already printed out or things available on, in my folder to be able to print out at short notice yeah perfect so just at the end we always ask our um, our guest what you would like listeners to remember from the conversation today um, so you had some great tips there kind of generally about what we can do but what what are your like kind of one to three main things that you want listeners to remember uh one is never assume i think that's the main danger with frailty screening is people assume especially towards the the latter stages that people aren't suitable for interventions people aren't fit for interventions or people don't want over investigating but it's important to have those discussions and go into the ins and outs of it even when it comes to a cancer diagnosis in the severely frail where you think they may not be suitable for chemotherapy or surgery there are still there's still some value in a cancer diagnosis but it depends on the patient themselves uh you know when it comes to someone who might want to plan preempt and when it comes to implications for funding but there are also the well recognized dangers of over diagnosis and over investigations as well so it's got to be a carefully weighted balance so you yeah, never assume and uh, it's, it's all about patient involvement provide the information and work together but also be aware that you know it's very easy to coerce people so it's important to spell out the dangers as well and spell out the benefits and the risks and often you'll find that people will want to put the ball in your court which is fine like they don't want to make decisions for themselves and you tell me what to do and I talked about getting away from the paternalistic side but some in some cases that's what patients want and if that's the case then think about what you'd want for yourself or for your own loved ones and then that's probably the avenue that you'll go down those are my main takeaway messages anyway yeah wonderful well thank you so much for talking to us i know it's a huge topic area and you've done an incredible job to to cover as much as we have so really appreciate your insight into it yeah no worries anytime so Sarah, now that we've had that um, fabulous chat with Sid um, and we've learned um, all about um, frailty and its complexity, what are you, what are you thinking? What is your takeaway? Um, yeah, uh, awesome episode. Really, really enjoyed talking to him. Um, something that struck me was I would have loved training or to have sit in in geriatric care of the older adults um, appointments and just sort of see how they do it because it is such an essential part of our job. And like he points out about the aging population, it's only going to become more and more part of our job. So yeah, it, it feels like such an important area of medicine to really spend decent amounts of time looking at um and yeah what a big ask that we made of him to just sort of talk us through all ev everyone but I guess that's the point isn't it that when you're seeing this an older adult in clinic there's so many that you know that actually ha orientating yourself through a problem list is brilliant because there are so many different 
areas to appreciate and then working off their priorities being a, a really good way of starting that yeah what about you yeah I think I'm fairly similar and also just it was really um good to think about um frailty in terms of that preventing and preempting part of it um so rather than just um thinking about frailty when things are kicking off actually um trying to think about it in advance and look at it when in those lower scores um, and think about where people might end up um or um, where you can put in um, intervention um, early on to prevent um deterioration Deterioration or um, progression of someone's frailty, and he um, he talked about uh, that small wins part of things and how um, we're just really trying within frailty to to make life a little bit better um, for these patients. And actually, also before I came into this, really, um, I always thought of frailty as quite an indescribable concept. Um, I found it really hard to pin down and I never really liked um, coming into contact with it or addressing frailty. But I think this chat um, with Sid has kind of I think he was really good at describing it and um, making me realise that it is definable um, and it is useful and it's useful for both um, the clinician and for the patient. So yeah, I just thought that that really was all quite useful for me. Yeah, I kept thinking about, oh, this is this is um, underpinning so much of what we would call our pragmatic approach to uh, care of, of complex patients. So, But to actually have a framework around assessing people or when and how to think about the stop criteria and polypharmacy and thinking about what's appropriate when, we'd always do that on an individual basis and I really liked that that was very much at the center of what he said but that actually you know it's not just your amorphous impression it's no there is a, a frailty score here or there's something that's backing that up and where the frailty scores or assessments fitted in was quite interesting it's useful to have those things like he was saying they get prompts about bone health about polypharmacy and it, it would be nice to yeah, just make sure that we are thinking about those things um, the, and the caveats to using frailty scores being so important and, and the example is ga he gave us, yeah, would, would stick in our heads definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And actually, just to mention, when we were um, planning the episode and we were um, kind of thinking about frailty and we were going out and asking and canvassing for thoughts about it, um, we did get to hold a few useful bits um, related to um, frailty in general practice um, that we thought we might just include here. So one of them is that um, those with a moderate or severe frailty score, so a score of six or more, mean that um, those people are automatically exemption reported from some of the diabetes quaff indicators. Um, so that's quite important to know um, when you're scoring people or, or recording that coding and also that frailty identifying frailty um, became part of the GP contract for those who are over 65 um, but it's not specifically incentivized or rewarded through quaff um, specifically so that's just um, other useful bits to include for people. The other bit of GP admin worth mentioning is that when it comes to the electronic frailty index, some practices and some systems have a system where when you click on a patient's notes, it will pop up as a reminder of their electronic frailty score. And would you like to code this patient as being frail? Um, so it is worth mentioning that NHS England have warned practices against using the prompt as a way of batch coding patients as being frail for exactly the reasons that we discussed in the episode. But in terms of other personal learning points for me from the episode was I 
like the way when he talked through the case and the priorities, he identified what was important for the patient, but he also identified slightly more subtle things that might get missed. So just the frizomide, the amlodipine, the dehydration, yeah, things that might easily get missed or put to the bottom of the pile, um, but were actually really important in terms of thinking about all the contributing factors for why things are not going well and how we can help. Um, so yeah, it was really good. It was really good detective work, really impressive to make sure that as many things that we can do are being done. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. It was such a um, a useful episode and a really great chat and full kudos to um, Sid for fitting it in that time frame. It was a really chunky topic um, <laughs> to ask him to deal with. Um, and if you um, if you like what you're hearing, um, please get in touch, um, like us, tell a friend. We'll put all of the links in our episode description. Thank you for everyone who's gotten in touch um, with us already. As we always say, we love to hear um, about what you're liking and what you're not liking about the um, the episodes and the and the podcast, um, so that we can keep improving. Till next time on Primary Care Knowledge Boost. This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in 2023. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewees' opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast.